0: It's interesting to see that, for one, this tells me all is not lost, right? Like these plants still have some defenses. There's still things they can do. Even though these plants do have these defenses, uh, these innate defenses, there's a chance that they could be overwhelmed, right? And just think of the, the biological memory that would be lost by losing the Great b- Basin bristlecone pine. Hi, this is Vikram Baliga from Texas Tech University.
1: And I'm Erfan Vafai from Texas A&M AgriLife Extension.
0: And you're listening to Jolly Green Scientist, the show where we take green industry papers and popular science publications and digest the data and deliver it straight to you. We're going to be talking about a paper titled Defense Traits in the Long-Lived Great Basin Bristlecone Pine and Resistance to Native Herbivore Mountain Pine Beetle. Now, my mountain pine beetles,
1: um, those are... A big deal. I mean, yeah. it, especially from the West Coast, you are very familiar with mountain pine beetles. Um, they have the the scientific name dendroctinus, which dender is is Greek for tree and tonus being death. So, like they bring death to trees. That's what this whole genus does, nor Dendroctinus ponderosae. Um, so they they have been wiping out uh, stands of, of pine trees in the West coast. Uh, have you seen any photos of that? I
0: have. And, uh, you know, I've seen similar damage from the pine bark beetle in Colorado, um, where you drive through the mountains and these huge stands of, you know, various pine species are just, I mean, it looks like forest fires went through there. It's just decimated.
1: Yeah, like massive regions where you can just see either uh, a huge change in the color of the the pine pine needles, or just the lack of pine needles. I mean, right, they're dead, and that's. I mean, we're getting something similar. You know, we've just seen, I think, a few more cases of emerald ash borer, uh, and that's a borer pest of ash trees that has been devastating a little bit more of like the eastern, you know, Canada and U.S. and all the ash trees, especially in urban areas. And, um, you know, it's similar in the sense that it attacks perfectly healthy trees and kills them.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, we're losing um, very important canopy cover uh, yeah. all mm-hmm. over the United States and, you know, f- uh, past the United States as well. I know these problems uh, extend in some cases down into Mexico and up into Canada through that whole mountain belt. But, um, yeah, lots of um, just deforestation,
1: economic damage and everything, everything in between. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, I think in this paper, they talk about how it's an estimated 28 million hectares in the Western USA and Canada that has seen um, this mountain pine beetle population kind of kill. Uh, so it's kind of yeah. it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Billions of trees. Billions of yeah, trees. It's crazy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and we also have like some other similar beetles here, kind of like ambrosia beetles as well in that they, you know, and, and we have, they kind of fluctuate, right? Like year after year, sometimes they're a major problem. Sometimes they're not. Uh, but in a similar way, this mountain pine beetle actually goes into the tree with a type of fungus, and kind of infects the tree and feeds off of that fungus. It, it provides some essential nutrients for the uh, for both the larvae and the adult mountain pine beetles. So it's kind of an interesting kind of uh, relationship that they have uh, with, with with fungi. Well, and and something
0: that we'll probably cover in a future episode. It's actually one of the articles I've I've kind of uh, stockpiled for this. Uh, our Texas listeners may be uh, familiar with um, oak wilt uh, that's, that's causing oh, incredible yeah. amounts of damage in, in the state of Texas is primarily to red oaks um, and to live oaks as well, but primarily red oaks. Uh, and that's um, vectored generally by this little knitted doula beetle that has a similar kind of relationship feeds on the fungus yeah. flies to the next tree, moves the fungus. So that's something we'll cover later. So
1: yeah, uh, yeah, yeah so so who okay so who uh, are the authors of these papers like who who did this
0: stuff? so this was written um, this this is actually accepted in 2016 in uh, the new phytologist journal uh, authored by Barbara J Bentz um, Sharon Hood e Matthew Hansen James Vandergriff and Karen mock um Primarily from the U.S. Uh, DA Forest Service in a couple of different locations. Also, one of the authors, um, uh, Karen Mock, is from the Department of Wildland Resources and Ecology Center at Utah State.
1: And they're looking specifically at uh, th- this particular region, the Great Basin, which you know is pretty remarkable because it has the lowest lying part in in the U.S. Right, which is what called the Death Valley. Mm-hmm. We like to name <laughs> it's the things yeah, yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah, right, and and the highest point as well, just a hundred less than a hundred miles away, uh, which is the the summit of Mount Whitney. Mm-hmm. So it has like this huge geographical range, uh, a lot of diversity, a whole lot of different ecosystems and and biomes that are quite unique within that range, and there is this uh, one type of tree, the Great Basin, bristlecone pine. So it is a type of pine that uh, this is a very fascinating tree. It is. Um, I never thought I would say something like that as an <laughs> entomologist, <laughs> but since you're, you're the, you're the plant guy, like what's you agreed. It is what's interesting about this.
0: Oh tree? yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when people ask me, what's my favorite plant or my favorite tree, I usually say the bristlecone pine. Um, they are incredibly, oh. uh, long lived trees. And what's interesting compared to a lot of other pines that, you know, have a, a large native range and a huge distribution, uh, these these trees, um, the Great Basin, Briscoe Pine, Pinus Longeva, as well as the Foxtail Pine, which they also looked at in this study, which is uh, Pinus Balfouriana, uh, are, alp- I mean, they're high elevation alpine trees. And so they only grow above a, you know, a certain elevation and they're clustered you know, primarily in the Western United States, there's lots of them kind of as far north as, as Yellowstone and then down through California, uh, Nevada, and Utah. Um, but the oldest of these, I think the oldest living one right now is they've named Methuselah. And it's about 4,800 years old, 4,800 years old, which is Gosh. wild
1: to think about, right? Yeah absolutely I mean that's in my mind is it the closest to immortality that I can think of with a living organism yeah yeah (laughs) I mean they're the
0: oldest this species of trees the oldest um, non-clonal life form on the planet you know the oldest single organism and you think about like uh, you know when when the first uh, Europeans were coming through North America and coming through you know going through the Oregon Trail settling California all of that they were already thousands of years old. Years thousands old. Yeah. of years old. The, the you know, the things <laughs> these these trees have seen come and go. Um, but they're important for a lot of reasons. Uh, you know, one, I think it's I think it's interesting to think about that that uh life is important in and of itself, right? Like it just has intrinsic value because it's alive. A living thing. It's a thing, living yeah. thing. Not just because it's super cool, but it is super cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. almost more than that, in some ways, these when we think about how do we find the historical record of ecosystems and of our climate, uh, we find something that's been alive a long time and you figure out how to have it tell that story. So Hmm. through tree cores, looking at ring growth, um, you know, you can, you can track when there was a fire, you can track when there was a dry year, a a wet year and what the carbon in the atmosphere looked like and all these things, you can tell it from this living organism. uh, That's kind of seen it all.
1: And just by looking at essentially that, that core, looking at some kind of the patterns of growth from year yeah. to year, is that kind of yeah. how it so, works? Yeah, so, you know,
0: in trees, they, they lay in wood on the outside. So each year, they essentially add another ring to that story. And so... Um, you know, they're very, very small on a bristlecone pine because they grow so slowly. But under a microscope, you can, you can see the differences and you can tell a lot from the rings of a tree down to what the soil was like, which way the prevailing winds came from, if those wind patterns changed from year to year, all kinds of crazy stuff.
1: I mean, that's pretty remarkable. At the same time, I'm very glad that humans are able to communicate because it sounds like the alternative would be You'd have to take a biopsy of a human <laughs> to, you know, know about their yeah, history. That's, yeah. You know, that's, speech is, speech is <laughs> important. <It's> like, yeah. <laughs> it would take like, you know, a, a piece of bone marrow to know about uh, Podcast. their growing Podcasts
0: would be way boring. Yeah. yeah. Right. And a lot weirder. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> and, and so this tree, um, so what's really neat about it as well is that uh, it's in the potential range of this mountain pine beetle, right? And so, uh, what they want to know is, like you said, it's really long lived. So it's thought that a really long lived tree, there's one of two potential outcomes, right? Is either one, it's going to be very ill suited for this mountain pine beetle, uh, because it's thought that these uh, long lived trees basically they have, they have shorter generation time, so you're not going to be able to you know evolve or adapt as, as quickly. Right. Um, and and or alternatively, said so it's so old, they're so long lived that these mountain pine beetles, they used to actually be a problem for pine trees, you know, what is it? Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years mm-hmm. ago, like pre-glacier, right? So it was thought that the the incoming of this glacier and then the, the, the going out of the glacier allowed for the pine trees to grow back. Uh, and then the pine beetles are just starting to become kind of problematic again, and then their population's kind of fluctuating. And so it's thought that if these trees are very old, maybe they have a good defense memory against the mountain pine beetles. So in this study, they kind of uh, are investigating, you know, this... Great Basin Bristlecone Pine, how does it compare to some of the other uh, pine trees in that area in terms of its defenses against the mountain pine beetle? So what, you know, maybe you can tell us like, so what what do they do? How do they, how do they figure that out? So
0: they looked at a couple of different, actually three different species of pine tree. Again, the, the Great Basin Bristlecone, the foxtail pine, both of which are high altitude, long lived trees. But they also looked at a very common host of the mountain pine beetle, uh, the limber pine, uh, Pinus flexilis, which, as you were talking at the beginning, is a fast-growing tree that spreads very quickly and has a wide range. Uh, But why why they picked this species as their their third um, species of interest is because there's not a lot of crossover between the Great Basin bristlecone and the foxtail pine except in that the limber pine grows in both of their, their ranges. And so the uh, range they thought that would be an interesting comparison because they can compare it back to both trees. Um, They collected a lot of data, like so much data. And I'm thinking like, you know, I'm writing a dissertation right now and I'm like, Oh my goodness. They're like, they did, they did a lot of work on this. So, so how did they
1: collect, yeah, how do they collect this data? Because I love this. Yeah, it's
0: fascinating. So they they took several different metrics. So they sampled populations of these various pine species across 10 mountain ranges in uh, eastern California and then through Nevada and Utah. Um, so they were looking for mountain pine beetle activity and stand density. So those were two different things that they thought really important. They used satellite data and historical data to see where damage has has tended to be from these mountain pine beetles and they picked those as common ranges um, but they also wanted to make sure that the target species were in those ranges so they took these fixed, um, radius plots of 0.05 hectares and they did stand counts of the different species of trees and they also looked for um, signs of pine beetle damage, uh, boreholes, um, you know, uh, some of the fungal mats that, that are associated with them, different things like that, that would signify activity, uh, sawdust Mm -hmm. on the ground, you know, that from when they kick it out of the, the boreholes. Um, and then they determine the cause of death of these trees. So what was interesting to me is they weren't just looking at only trees that were killed by the mountain pine beetle. They looked at other causes of death as well, uh, because that's actually pretty interesting to know. Okay. Is um, herbivory worse on some of these trees that are affected by, say, a disease or a fungus or drought or something else? So
1: could they draw some correlations between that? Um, Because these uh, borers can sometimes be secondary. So you might have some other major disease or some other insect that comes in, causes primary damage, and then the borer comes in secondary so it kind of helps to see a full picture of what are all the factors in there that were related to that mortality yeah
0: it teaches a lot about this overall uh pest and disease complex that that affects uh, an ecosystem uh, or a specific species for sure um Mm -hmm. they also removed and i thought this part was really interesting so they removed phloem plugs so phloem is the uh living tissue around the outside of a tree so if you were to let go and scratch some tree bark, you see the green stuff underneath, the green tissue underneath the bark. That's generally your yeah. phloem. That's we call it the cambial layer. Um, so it's
1: the, so then where's the where's the xylem? The xylem is the xylem's
0: in, inside of that, right? So xylem is generally yeah. not living tissue. It's just a network of um. It, right, right. So uh, xylem, <laughs> if you think about it, it's like straws that run all the way up the tree. And okay, they're connected gotcha. from the, the root hairs all the way up to the yep. stomatal openings on the leaves. And it's just okay. through that that pressure differential as the stomata open, create vapor that forces water all the way through that tree. Um, gotcha. So there's yep. no active transport in in the xylem. In the phloem, however, there is active transport of sugars and other compounds up and down the tree. So okay, gotcha. They pulled these phloem plugs, uh, which is again living tissue to figure out some of these uh, terpene compounds. Uh, you, you've probably heard of turpentine, you know the stuff yep, that mm-hmm. smells like a pine tree. Um, oh, but yeah. they're these uh, these comp th- these defensive compounds that these trees form uh, that are toxic to insects. they're insecticidal. Uh, they serve some other purposes in the plant as well. Um, and so yeah. they were they were measuring um, phloem thickness, uh, as well as uh, the de- presence of these defensive compounds in this living tissue. And then finally, they went in and poured, pulled um, bore plugs, like core plugs, sorry. They they went in and pulled core plugs from these trees to look at wood density, the presence of resin ducts, how many resin ducts they have. Uh, you know, um, pine trees are, a lot of conifers are resinous, so they have this sticky sap that you know, traps a mosquito, and then you make a dinosaur park out of it at some point in the future. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Right, right, right. And uh, so they were doing that to see if they were present, and then also to try to figure out the tree age um, from these cores.
1: And so, like, related to that, you know, I went and inspected a a grower recently that, uh, you know, was worried about some pine beetle damage. In this case, uh, maybe some ambrosia beetle or some black turpentine beetles. And they had a bunch of these, like mentioned pitch tubes, right? It's mm-hmm. like this resin mm-hmm. that uh, whenever this borer tries to go in the tree, the the tree is not completely defenseless. One of the defenses it has is that tries to push that beetle back out with this resin. Right. And, you know, it's thought that if there are not an, uh, enough beetles and the and the tree is healthy enough to produce enough resin, that it can prevent that beetle from getting in in the first place. Otherwise, you know, you can still see some of those um, the, those pitch tubes, but, uh, you know, that beetle might have gotten in. So um, that's a great way of kind of measuring. And I think that's what they're looking at with the phloem thickness mm-hmm. as well was. The idea is that if the, that that phloem is thicker, it might be harder for that beetle to actually penetrate and get inside. Well,
0: and that's really interesting too, because you think about um, I, I'm I'm a tree guy. I love trees, and I'm also a woodworker, so I'm super interested in the way wood is formed and the way that wood. And, and so, you know, there's all these different charts that you can find online of of wood density, of hardness. There's yeah. a hardness rating. Yeah. yeah. The Jenk the Jenkins yeah, yeah. Uh, Jenkins scale.
1: Jank, Jank, yep. Yeah, yeah, Jack and
0: and you know some of like the ironwoods have um, densities and strengths close to iron, close to metal, and that's why they're called ironwoods. Wow. So Jeez. if you look at some of these um, shorter-lived pines that are commonly used, you know, in the timber industry because they grow quickly, you can clear a, a plantation or clear a forested area, come back and plant the next generation, and and you know fairly quickly turn these over. Well, they don't have very dense wood. And so yeah. there's a time aspect to this, right? So like, even though there may be sap flow or resin flow in these trees, if that insect can get through the wood quickly enough to t- essentially set up shop inside the tree, um, then you know th- those defenses are not super effective or may not be super effective. Right. But in trees like the bristlecone pine, they have these this crazy twisting, very tightly grained wood pattern and bark patterns because they grow so slowly. Um, that Uh, they are in addition to having all of these compounds and there's a a really great graph, um, later in this or chart later in this paper showing all the different, um, compounds that these trees produce, like 30 different compounds that are defensive in nature. Uh, but if it takes longer for that insect to get in there and it's in contact with these insecticidal compounds longer, you get a better kill rate, right? There's a better defensive rate.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I guess that kind of takes us to what they actually found. Um, so uh, you know, I thought it was pretty neat and quite interesting to see that this bristlecone pine basically had no mountain pine, pine beetle damage. Yeah, on none, it. or, or none. no kill at and least. So,
0: no, no mortality. From yeah, it. at least
1: no kill. That's right. And and then they go on to quantify. So like you're saying, they're the whole reason why they're looking at all these other factors right? Like that resin, the the bark thickness, and all these different plant defense compounds is to try and understand why in the world now, you know, are we seeing what we, what we see? And they find uh, some of the things like, so that bristlecone pine's phloem thickness is quite a bit thicker than the limber uh, pine and even thicker than the foxtail pine. Uh, they also find a number of extra compounds in the bristlecone pine that's not in the limber pine that are, you know, one of them is uh, related to uh, aggregation pheromone. So, or, or enhancing, I guess, aggregation pheromone. That, um, you know, these beetles, when they attack a tree and, ooh, it's like a delicious tree, <laughs> they all start like releasing this chemical, right? That like tells all the other beetles, you got to come on over to this party. This tree is delicious. Uh, and then when there's like a whole lot of them on there, so many that they would potentially overwhelm the plant and won't, will no longer be a good host plant, they collectively release an anti aggregate. Aggreg- Aggregatory pheromone, right? <laughs> like telling all the beetles, like stay away. This party's right. full. And uh, so there are some compounds that, in that bristlecone pine, uh, basically would would prevent or or reduce that um, the um, the effect of that aggregation pheromone.
0: Right. Right. And that's and that's fascinating. So there's, you know, multiple layers of defense, multiple layers of defense. And um, mm-hmm. thinking about this from an, an evolutionary perspective, I think is also very fascinating. Um, like you said, they may have these trees are have that genetic memory, that defensive genetic memory that, you know, whereas these uh, uh, limber pines that, you know, are not, I'm not gonna say they're a new species, but they're not a long lived species. Uh, they don't. They don't know. They don't have that uh, innate um, defensive capability that these other trees that have have uh, intersected it in the past have um, kind of developed and maintained over the years, and that's fascinating to think about.
1: Yeah, I think one of the potential explanations that they give, you know, one is that it's super long lived, and so perhaps evolution occurs a lot slower. You know, so it's assumed that having plant defense compounds that you don't need is costly. Right. So if you can evolve quickly and there's no mountain pine beetles around, we're gonna get you're gonna get rid of those plant defense compounds. Whereas if you live a long time, you can't get rid of them, uh, which in this case is a good thing because the mountain pine beetles have come back. Or they give a second reason is that maybe you have some they call them exaptive defense traits. So these are traits that are adaptive to one set of conditions that also naturally confer uh, some adv- advantages in some other areas. So this thicker phloem, denser barkwood, and all that type of stuff also makes them more longer lived, uh, makes them more resistant to uh, bark uh, or tree decay, and these those same properties that give them those qualities also make them resistant to the mountain pine beetle. And I thought that was really cool. Well,
0: and and one one aspect of this that I thought was really interesting that they brought up that we haven't actually discussed is the, the climate change component of this. So one of the things they were discussing is as the climate is changing, it's pushing these mountain pine beetles into the native range of the bristlecone and foxtail pine or back into maybe um, the range Mm -hmm. of the bristlecone and foxtail pine. And there's an interesting discussion in here somewhere about, well, we tend to think, when you get a new kind of um, introduction of uh, an herbivore or a pest of some kind, we tend to think of um, an introduced invasive species. Um, Right. But that's not really the case here, right? They are, they are a native historical species that was pushed out for whatever reason, whether it was uh, through the, just the species distribution of the, their uh, trees that they ate or, through climate, through a, a number of things. But now that the climate's correct for those uh, um, mountain pine beetles to move back into the area, they're coming back. But again, the trees remember because it's not a novel species. It's a species that's been there before. Um, yeah. and, and that was, I thought, really fascinating to think about because I always think about, oh, no, we've brought in a new terrible thing that's, you know, going to uh, Asian longhorn beetles or or, you know, there's a, a long list of them that I'm sure we'll talk about over the uh, episodes, right. but um,
1: this is not that. Right. So, I mean, that is very interesting. And, you know, there's always a question of what do you consider invasive versus just a host range expansion, right? right? So, there's some concern if that mountain pine beetle gets to eastern U.S., it could wreak havoc on our pine, you know, but you have this large region, uh, that's relatively flat and has very few trees between us and West (laughs) coast, right? That kind of, that kind of prevents that movement. So it'd have to be some type of introduction of infested wood or infested materials from one end of the country, uh, to the next. Which unfortunately happens, um, quite a bit. Yes. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's how a lot of it happens. Absolutely. I think, you know, one of the things that made you know, big news recently is this whole uh you know murder hornets or the <laughs> uh you know giant Asian hornet that um you know it's it's because you know they didn't fly over <laughs> you know from Southeast Asia. They uh they, they came over on container shipments. And uh fortunately there's only been I think a couple spotted so far. So whether they're actually established or not is another question. Uh but in this case for the mountain pine beetle uh it is you know rapidly uh you know changing and or uh, moving its its uh, distribution based on uh favorable climate
0: so so a couple of take home messages that i kind of thought um for our green industry folks or honestly really anyone interested and in maybe even living in this area where this stuff is happening and and that frequents this area um population dynamics is important in terms of uh host and prey species, right? So as these population dynamics or and or the climate changes, you may get these influxes of different pests. So uh, it's interesting to see that, for one, this tells me all is not lost, right? Like these plants still have some defenses. There's still things they can do. But no. as people in the industry and as humans who have the capacity to influence climate change at this point because we've influenced it to now, Right. So we can yeah, hopefully right. influence it back the other direction. Um, even though these plants do have these defenses, uh, these innate defenses, there is a chance that they could be overwhelmed. Right. And right. just think of the the biological memory that would be lost by losing the great bi- Basin bristlecone pine.
1: Yeah, you know, I think, uh, like you mentioned, you know, if that climate changes and it creates an unfavorable habitat for this bristlecone pine, then like we mentioned earlier, you know, a stressed tree might not be able to produce quite as much resin. You know, that bark might not be quite as dense. You know, there, all of a sudden those defense mechanisms might be weakened just enough that the mountain pine beetle can start to not only attack but actually cause mortality. Right
0: well and and so from a uh, i tend to uh, uh, sometimes wax philosophical about trees um because i love i know <laughs> i'm i'm such a nerd i'm such a nerd but i love trees i love trees yeah and so cultures worldwide um as humans we we look to our elders um as a source of knowledge and a source of information and wisdom um and memes we look at memes And as memes well, are great yeah. yeah 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 the yeah. The, the arbiter <laughs> of all truth the meme <laughs> yeah. um, the elders and the memes yeah, that would that's gonna be an snl sketch uh, sketch eventually <laughs> um but you know we should be doing the same things when we evaluate nature because it turns out that things are that are really old are really good at surviving and they have a story to tell so while we can you know one we need to preserve uh um, these species that have that story to tell. But two, we need to be studying them and figuring out, okay, you know, you've made it quite a while. Uh, what things are you doing? What uh, evolutionary adaptations do you have? What defense mechanisms and all that? So from a research perspective, um, you know, it, it may it may not be super sexy sometimes to go, you know, stare at a tree that's five thousand years. I think it's cool. Um, but because, you know you can you can study, productive crops, and you can study all these other things, which those things are necessary too. Um, But I think we need to be looking at, as um, researchers into the the history of nature as well, as much as anything else. It has a story to tell, and it's an Mm. important story.
1: Absolutely. And I think if I can add a takeaway kind of directed at the green industry is related back to you know, oftentimes we want to grow something that is, that is quick growing, that will quickly provide that nice shade that has a nice uh, plant structure. But uh, perhaps we are selecting for things that don't have their natural resistance against a lot of these pests anymore. And, uh, you know, again, whether it be the amount of resin they produce or how dense that wood is, those are not always the factors that make it the top uh, of a list when we're selecting new cultivars or what trees to uh, produce for sale. And so, you know, I think, it'd be ideal if we started integrating and thinking more about uh, natural resistance to insects and diseases when we are doing, uh, you know, creating new cultivars for, for production. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to that. Uh, what I thought was a very interesting paper. Uh, again, the title is defense traits in the long lived great basin, bristlecone pine and resistance to the native herbivore mountain pine beetle by Bentz et al in the New Phytologist journal, and we will post a link to that uh, in the show notes if you're interested. Yeah, I can put
1: that in the uh, podcast notes. If you want to learn more about (laughs) the plant side of things, uh, you know, Vikram has another uh, podcast called Planthropology, and I'll be starting another one as well here. Well, we'll be started by the time this air, uh, this episode airs, and that's Talking Bugs. If you want to learn more about uh, entomologists, and insect-related things.
0: Join us again in two weeks, where we will be digesting more science just for you.